Hello, Heritage. I want to welcome all of you to week two of Revolution, a four-part journey where we're unpacking the reality that love is greater. I want to welcome all of you here at Rock Island, give a shout out to our family at Bettendorf and all of you joining us online. This is a very intentional conversation around understanding how God's love is greater, how it's greater than anything and everything that we face. It's higher than the highest, it's greater than the greatest. It's the virtue of all virtues. It overcomes things like fear and doubt. It restores what's been lost and broken. It heals wounds of injustice. It protects and trusts and hopes and prevails in all things. His love is greater than anything and everything we can encounter in this life. Which is why we started our conversation last week by looking at the reality that when, when we encounter a situation a challenge, a person, an issue that we cannot see a, a way to redeem or a way to reconcile when we can't make sense of how to lead it to a place that it's resolved, that's when things like fear and doubt and worry become the conduits of leading into our life despair. And when despair settles into our life, it begins to take over. That's what happens when we don't have an ability to process the gap between what's the problem and what's the solution. However, when we choose to love in that space, everything begins to change. Because love leads to hope as we live by faith. When we engage a problem in this world, an issue, a, a, an obstacle, a difficult person, then we choose to embrace in that space a posture of love. It leads to hope as we live by faith. This is a principle we saw last week as we began to unpack David's life and specifically the battle around Goliath, the fight that he had there. This principle applies to David. If you missed that, you can go to heritageqc.com and you can see it under the media tab. But Hope leading to love, which is done as we live by faith, is seen in David's life, but it also applies to our life. It applies to us. And we're going to see today that there's actually another area that this principle applies to that can impact who we are. But we're starting today with the reality that love leads to hope when we live by faith. And that's actually your first fill. And if you're following along in your sermon note guide, this is just a helpful tool as we continue to study God's word. But love leads to hope when we live by what? When we live by faith. That's how it works. Now, so far in this journey, we've been unpacking a couple of things around this principle. And we're going to look at another example of this in scripture. But before we do that, I want to revisit a key concept. This is something that that the Lord helped me understand a number of years ago, and it's radically changed the way I relate to him, the way I walk in my spiritual life. And I hope it does the same for you. We've looked at this before, but it hinges on the principle that love and obedience are inextricably linked together. They're connected. They cannot be separated. You can't have one without the other. In fact, it was Jesus who said in John 14, 15, he said, if you love me, you will obey my commands. You'll keep my commands. These two things are connected. How they're connected matters, and we need to understand it. So here's how this works. Because God loves us, he reveals himself to us, and we get to know him. We can know who he is as he reveals himself through creation, through the word, through scripture, or through his spirit. And when he reveals himself to us, we get to know him, and if we know him, we will inherently love him, because he himself is love. And scripture tells us that we love because he first loved us. So when we know him, we will love him. But then when we love him, 
that will mean that we ultimately trust him. Trust is an inherent part of love. Love always trusts. So if we know him, we'll love him, which means we'll trust him, that then positions us to obey him, to do what he says. If we trust, we will obey. And when we obey, he then reveals himself more to us so that we know him more, to love him more, trust him more, and obey him more. And the cycle continues as long as we continue to to choose love, trust, and obedience. We know this because of one thing that Jesus said. It makes it very clear in John 14, verse 21. Here's what he said. Whoever has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. The one who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I too will love them and show myself to them. Underline that, circle that, highlight that. Show myself to them. So let's go back to the cycle for a moment. When we love and we trust and then we obey, he shows himself to us so now we know him more, which means we can love him more, trust and obey all the more. Look, if this is something you have not understood before, this is the first time you're beginning to see and hear this, this is life-changing. This will radically change your spiritual journey and how you relate to God. It's, honestly, it's worth the price of admission right here, right there. We can go home. Because our ability to obey hinges on whether or not we truly love. And love is greater. Now, love can be expressed in a continuum. The level of our love can be expressed in a continuum, a continuum between apathy and empathy. It's apathy and empathy. You may know this, but pathy, the suffix pathy, stands for or means feeling or suffering. Feeling or suffering. When you add the prefix ah before it, ah means without or not. When you add the prefix emm, it's really speaking to being within or inside. So empathy is defined as this. It's defined as the ability to understand and share the feelings of another. Empathy, it's feeling with or suffering inside. That's empathy. Apathy, on the other hand, is, is really the opposite. Apathy is a lack of interest, enthusiasm, or concern. It's without feeling, and it's not suffering. So apathy and empathy are inherently exact opposites. And where we fall in the continuum of apathy and empathy really depends on how much we feel. How much we feel the suffering and feelings of another. And we can be empathetic or we can be apathetic. And to be totally apathetic is quite honestly pathetic. See what I did there? Really creative. Because here's why it's pathetic. Love is greater than apathy. That's your next feeling if you're tracking in the guide. Love is greater than apathy. It's greater than what? Apathy. Apathy says, I don't feel and I don't care. So, so here's what we understand so far. We saw with David that love is greater than despair. But love is also greater than apathy. Look, when we encounter a problem, a situation, one of these things that challenges our comfort, that really is pushing us to sacrifice, that's creating a space for us to love in the complexity, we often tend to want to avoid those places. We don't like going there. We don't like to go into the crisis, into the valley. It's much easier to just give in to apathy rather than to do what we're supposed to do, which is to risk in obedience. Because if we risk and obey, that demonstrates that we truly love and our love is expressed in risk and obedience. And it's really hard for us to want to embrace the space that we have to step into the valley, step into the crisis. We actually tend to want to walk away instead of doing what we're supposed to do. We want to embrace apathy rather than empathy, the expression of love as we risk and obey. But this is really clear in Scripture. 
It's clear in the Old Testament, in the New Testament, in the words of Jesus, in the teachings of Paul. Let me give you just a few examples of this. Here, these are the words of Jesus. Jesus said in John 15, My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. This is the reality that love is greater than apathy. It leads to empathy. Here's what Paul said. Paul said in Romans 12, Rejoice with those who rejoice, mourn with those who mourn. That's empathy. It's feeling with, suffering with, empathy. He goes on to write in Corinthians. He says, if one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. There are tons of scriptures that move us and push us to reject apathy, but to embrace empathy. And there's really no room in the life of a believer for apathy. It's really easy to choose our comfort over the needs and suffering of others. It's very tempting. It's very easy to do. But God calls us to embrace empathy, not apathy. Not to choose our own comfort, but to choose obedience as we risk. And there's more at stake here than just our comfort. There's really an issue of of promoting more evil or prompting more suffering. Because it's apathy, not evil, that facilitates more evil. Let me say that again. It's apathy more than evil that facilitates greater evil. It, what facilitates greater evil is not more evil. It's apathy. It's apathy. Doing nothing is not neutrality. Doing nothing is an endorsement. It's permission. It's an indirect choice to allow something that shouldn't be. And we think we're innocent in apathy. But apathy inherently makes us guilty. Doing nothing inherently prompts more evil. It's, it's apathy more than evil that facilitates greater evil. Many of us are familiar with the quote by Edmund Burke. And this is what he said. The only thing necessary for the triumph of evil is for good men to do nothing. That, that's true. It's a powerful statement. It really, it's a great way to start to think about the issue. But many of us aren't as familiar with another statement that he made where he said, nobody made a greater mistake than he who did nothing because he could do only a little. It's apathy more than evil that facilitates greater evil. Let's look at an example of this and how it plays out in life. So if you've got a Bible, I'd love for you to grab it and turn with me to the book of Esther. It's in the Old Testament. It's after Nehemiah, but before Job and Psalms. And if you don't have a Bible, many of the scriptures are are in our note guide and up on the screen today. But we're going to be all over the book of Esther, but we're going to be starting, and you can put your thumb in chapter 4, and that's where we're going to be picking up most of the journey. Because in this book of Esther, tucked into the Old Testament, we find the story of a young girl who was an orphan who became a queen. And although there are some very unhealthy and even ugly cultural dynamics in this story, there are also some very beautiful expressions of what God's love can do, how love is greater, greater than apathy. So what takes place early on in this story is uh, something that's kind of like a, a combination of the bachelor slash wife swap slash Miss Universe competition. <laughs> it's like a Miss Persia competition where they're looking to find a new queen for the king. And that search leads to a young girl, a young beautiful girl named Hadassah, also known as Esther. Now, she becomes queen, but in Esther's life, she could have been someone who embraced despair. Her her life is marked by a story of beauty from ashes. Her parents died. 
She was an orphan. She could have embraced despair in that. Her uncle, whose name was Mordecai, could have embraced apathy when it came to Esther as an orphan, but he didn't. He took her in and raised her as his own daughter. Neither one of them embraced apathy or despair. They knew that love was greater. So here's what happens early on. Once she is queen, two things significant happen. One is that Mordecai, Esther's uncle, hears about an assassination plot against the king. And he tells Esther, and Esther relays that information, and they're able to stop that from happening. That's the first thing. The second thing that comes later is that one of the members, one of the nobles of the kingdom named Haman is promoted to the highest position. So he is the senior ranking noble of everybody. And he wants people to bow to him. But Mordecai won't do that. Mordecai won't bow to him. So Haman gets mad. He gets honked at him. So mad, he, he makes a commitment to kill all of Mordecai's people, all of the Jews. Now, at this point, you got to understand that nobody knew that Esther was a Jew. Mordecai had told her to keep that secret. So as Haman goes to the king and starts to ask and facilitate an edict that says, let's annihilate all of the Jews, he actually even offers money to the king to do this. The king does it, but he doesn't take the money. In fact, he demonstrates apathy towards an entire people group which promotes greater evil. And he writes the edict. Now, as soon as Mordecai hears about this, he is distraught. He is in distress. He's, he's on the verge of despair. Esther hears about this, sends a servant Mordecai tells that servant what's going on. So Esther learns about the edict. And, and Mordecai asks her to go and beg for mercy and plead with the king on behalf of her people. Now, it sounds like a simple thing. She's queen. She should be able to do that. But the problem is that to approach the king without permission was a capital offense. It would mean death. So as Esther considers what she needs to do, she responds this way in Esther chapter 4, starting at verse 11. All of the king's officials and the people of the royal provinces know that for any man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned, the king has but one law, that they be put to death, unless the king extends the gold scepter to them and spares their lives. So right here in this space, Esther's counting the cost of what it means to risk in obedience instead of embracing apathy. Here's what Mordecai says in response to her. When Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he sent back this answer. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. But you and your father's family will perish. And who knows, but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. Such a time as this. Look, there is a very clear gap for Esther between the problem and the solution, between good and evil, between the need and the help. And Esther could have chosen apathy. Mordecai could have chosen just despair. And, and we get this. We understand this principle. We may not be royalty. We may not be facing annihilation. But we understand what it is to encounter a problem, encounter a situation, a challenge, a person where we struggle to understand what the solution is. And we face the very real temptation to embrace apathy instead of empathy as we risk in obedience. We understand the dynamic. 
And we have a choice in that dynamic for how we're going to move and respond. But anytime we, underst- anytime we walk with God, there's always more happening in the dynamic than we realize. Or at least more than what we see on the surface. Because if you're still tracking your guide, there's a principle I need you to understand. That God doesn't grant favor for status, but rather purpose. God doesn't grant favor for status, but rather purpose. Rather what? Purpose. Esther wasn't queen by accident. It wasn't for no reason. God granted her favor for his purpose. Even Mordecai points that out when he says, hey, perhaps for such a time as this, you're in your place of royalty. God doesn't grant favor for status, but purpose. And he wants to do the same for you and I. So if you're a follower of Jesus, the reality is that there are places in your life that God has gone before you, that he has granted you favor, and in each one of those places, he wants to bring about his purpose. If you'll let him. If you'll risk in obedience. It's like what Paul said in 1 Corinthians. He said, now it is required that those who have been given a trust must prove faithful. Those who have been given a place of stewardship, a place to manage, must prove faithful. Proving ourselves faithful is, also, is really just risking in obedience. It's living by faith. And Esther could have been apathetic towards everyone else. She was set. She had good reason. Death. She could have left her people behind. But instead, she felt the pain of those she served. And I got to tell you, it only takes one person who's willing to risk for God to respond to change things, and to do a new thing and bring about his purpose. But he doesn't grant his favor just for status. He grants it for his purpose. And Esther, recognizing that, embraces empathy. And she starts to move towards action. She specifically asks for her people to join her and her servants in three days of prayer and fasting. Here's what she says in 4.16. Go gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my attendants will fast as you do. When this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. She's saying, look, take my life. If this is going to cost me my life, I still choose risking in obedience and choosing love and empathy rather than apathy. And I got to tell you, this is where everything begins to change in this scenario. Just like when David declared what would happen to Goliath before the battle even started. Esther is reorienting herself in a manner that allows God to bring a victory into this before anything else happens. This is where it all begins to change. Because when we live by faith, love leads to hope. So we keep reading in chapter 5, verse 1. On the third day, Esther put on on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the palace in front of the king's hall. The king was sitting on his royal throne in the hall facing the entrance. So like this is right here. This is death moment. This is the place that what she has done, she's committed a capital offense and the rule is you die. But when he saw Queen Esther standing in the court, he was pleased with her and held out the gold scepter that was in his hand. So Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter. Then the king asked, what is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? Even up to half the kingdom, it will be given to you. <laughs> Whew. That was close. <laughs> but not as close as it may think and feel. Because I said everything changed when Esther embraced empathy instead of apathy. When she chose to pursue God 
to speak to him and ask him to pray and fast. When she chose faith over fear, everything began to, began to change. God began to grant her favor. God began to go before her. And this messed up scenario begins to change. And I've got to tell you, he wants to do the same thing in the messed up places of your life. If you allow your knowing to lead to loving and your loving to lead to trusting, your trusting to obeying. He wants to move like this in your life. So what ends up happening is that Esther masterfully begins to implement a plan, one that I believe God gave her in her time of prayer and fasting. It's brilliant. It's the perfect plan to reveal Haman's schemes and his heart behind it. And you can read about it later. But what ends up happening is that Mordecai is actually rewarded. The edict is repealed and Haman is punished in a very interesting example of strong irony. You can check that out later. But with the understanding of the story, the takeaway that I think we need to understand in this part of our journey is that love leads us to act when we care enough to risk. Love leads us to act when we care enough to risk. Care enough to what? To risk. We saw last week, we saw that with David, to risk, that love leads to action. And we see the same thing here too. Love leads us to act when we care enough to risk. Look, there's a difference between beliefs and faith. Having strong beliefs doesn't mean you have strong faith. Strong beliefs lead to convictions. Strong faith leads to actions. There's a difference. Faith always risks in obedience. Love leads us to act when we care enough to risk. It's essentially the right people doing the right thing at the right time. And that was Esther. That's what she was doing. She could have been apathetic towards her people. She was set. She was taken care of. She was comfortable. And she had reason to hesitate to go into a place that would have cost her her life. The king had already been very harsh toward his previous queen. And there was no guarantee that he wouldn't be that harsh against Esther. We sit here today with an understanding of what happened in that dynamic. Esther didn't have that. Esther didn't know how this was going to work out. All she knew is that she needed to live with the conviction of love in obedience. To risk in obedience with empathy and not apathy. She could have been apathetic, but she wasn't. Even Mordecai could have embraced a level of apathy and despair, as I said before. His life was not easy. Mordecai was taken into exile out of Jerusalem by King Nebuchadnezzar and taken to Babylon the same time as Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He had a very difficult life. Could have written off all the reasons why he didn't need to risk in obedience. Esther and Mordecai both could have tried to justify apathy by their journey. And I know we can do that too. I've done that in my journey with God. Tried to justify why I don't have to because of what it's cost me before. When we experience pain and loss, we can allow that to lead us to try to justify our own apathy. But if we don't obey, it means we don't trust. And if we don't trust, it means we don't love. And if we don't love, then we don't get to know him. And he doesn't go before us. And he doesn't grant us favor. God grants favor, not for status, but for his purpose. And if we love him, we will set aside the ambivalence of apathy. And we will embrace, by faith, the risk in obedience to act when we care enough to risk. You know, I want to let you know of one way that we as a church are doing this. 
through your generosity, it connects back to the Christmas offering, but through the resources given there, a portion of those went to support and provide winterization packs for Syrian refugees in Lebanon. And I want to show you a thank you video that the, that the folks in leadership on the ground sent us. Check this out. Yeah. Because you cared enough. Because you chose empathy over apathy. 350 refugees received packets. Love leads us to act when we care enough to risk. You know, I was invited a year and a half ago to go to Lebanon and to see firsthand these camps. Uh, to see the ministry on the ground, to see how the empathy demonstrated by Heart for Lebanon was leading into deeper relationship and connection to Jesus. A phenomenal thing to, to realize and see how God's drawing Muslims to himself. The, the, the stories of people having visions and dreams of Jesus before they ever know the story of Jesus, but when they hear Heart for Lebanon share about Jesus, they connect the dots and they're choosing faith in him. It's a powerful movement that's taking place in a very desperate scenario. What's been happening over the last three years is as people have fled Syria due to violence and persecution, they've come over the mountains into Lebanon. And Lebanon, which is a country of some four million, now has absorbed anywhere from one to two million refugees. There's a lot of great need in that space. Among the more recent disturbing facts, sad facts, heartbreaking facts that I heard was that over the last three years, some 10,000, 10,000 Syrian children are now unaccounted for. Many dead, but also many believed to be in human trafficking. If that doesn't stir you at all, if that doesn't connect to your heart at all, you're way on the apathetic side of the, of the spectrum. If you feel, you feel moved by the, the hurt and the suffering of another, then you're on the other side. You're moving towards empathy. And love leads us to act when we care enough to risk. You know, one of the things I understand and know about God is that every significant pur purpose that he brings before you will put your courage to the test. There is no courage apart from fear. Courage is revealed in fear and crisis. Esther felt fear. 
but she also felt the pain of others. She had empathy, and she chose courage. And every significant purpose that God brings in front of you will put your courage to the test. I wonder if you're ready to choose empathy and love as opposed to choosing apathy. What do we do with what we're talking about today? Let's move this to the so what. Here's the thing about how God works in this world. For better or for worse, he's chosen to work through us. He's chosen to work through us. And here's a principle that you need to understand. That whenever God is making a difference in us, whenever he's making a difference in us, he always intends to make a difference through us. Always. Whenever God is working inside of you, he's doing something in you different. He always has a purpose beyond you to work through you for his purpose. And if you think that your life is insignificant, that you can't change what's broken and messed up, you're wrong. It's simply not true. Because Jesus lived and died and rose again, we can experience and facilitate more. We can change what's wrong. We can see these cities transformed, but we've got to believe that love is greater. So don't make the mistake of, that, of doing nothing because you can only do a little. It only takes one person who's willing to risk in obedience for God to facilitate change, to do a new thing. It's the right people at the right time doing the right thing. So here are three steps that all come from 1 John chapter 3 that can help each of us discern our next step. And its first one is simply to know love. To know love. Here's what John wrote. John wrote that this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. We know what love is because of what Jesus did. Jesus didn't choose apathy. And I'm so glad he didn't. And right now, you can choose to have a relationship with God through Jesus by asking him to be Lord and Savior. You ask for forgiveness, you receive the gift of eternal life, and you begin to walk with God. And you begin to understand how love is greater than anything and everything you encounter in this world. But you've got to choose to receive him. And when you do, then you begin to live in empathy. No longer living for yourself, but living for something much bigger than yourself. So, you need to know love. But once you know love, then you can actually have love. You have love. Here's what John goes on to say in the very next verse. If anyone has material possessions, that would be like worldly goods, a place of royalty, and sees a brother or sister in need, but has no pity, no empathy, no care or feeling for them, how can the love of God be in that person? We aren't just to know love, we're to have love. And God's love should compel us to act. Esther didn't wait for someone else to do something. Jesus didn't wait. And God's love compels us to act and set aside our comfort for others. If, if or when we don't, then we neither know or have love. It's not in us. And we don't have love. And we don't know him. We're not trusting and we're not obeying. Yet when we know him, when we know and have love, then that moves us to actual obedience and we can be love. We can be love. John said this in the very next verse, Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. Be love. Esther could have been totally apathetic to her people, to everyone else. Mordecai could have been apathetic to Esther. In our pain and loss, we can try to justify our apathy. But whenever God is making a difference in you, he always intends to make a difference through you. So, the question I have for you is where is God asking you to care enough to risk because love is greater? 
Where is God asking you to care enough to risk because love is greater? Is it at at home, at work, in your neighborhood, school? Where is he asking you to care enough to risk, to give to meet a need? In your family dynamics, in your relationship with a friend, in your relationship with a coworker, where does he want you to choose empathy over apathy? Because one person can make a difference. Where is he asking you to care enough to risk? This, this conversation around revolution is about a movement. It's a movement that Jesus started and one we simply want to continue. We want to continue that movement. But every revolution requires revolutionaries. Jesus was a revolutionary. David was a revolutionary. Esther was a revolutionary. Revolutions and revolutionaries are connected. You can't have one without the other. So I wonder, as we end our time today, where God is asking you to care enough to risk in obedience, in a space where love is greater, and to be one of his revolutionaries. Where is he asking you to care enough to risk? Because love is greater. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I thank you that your love is higher than the highest and greater than the greatest. I thank you that your love led you to send your son Jesus, and because of him we can have life and life to the full. And I pray, Father, that you would forgive us for where we have sat back in apathy because we have been taken care of, we are in comfort, and maybe we have a position, maybe not royalty, but one of comfort. And we've chosen apathy, or we've chosen despair in the complexity rather than choosing to love, rather than risking in obedience. Father, I pray that you would help each one of us to know where you're asking us to care enough to risk because your love is greater. And that once we know that, that we wouldn't stop with knowing that we would demonstrate our love in trust and obedience. And as we obey, you'd show us more of who you are. And that would lead to an ongoing cycle of seeing your glory and seeing you at work in this world and seeing you transform not only our families and not only our communities, but these cities and beyond. But Father, it takes our willingness to embrace empathy over apathy. And as we process this conversation and your word further on our own, May you give us the boldness to step so that we know love and that we have love so we can be love. I pray these things in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen.